Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Thank you for that, uh, Aaron. For those of you who uh, don't know me, um, my name is Kent Carlson. I uh, used to be one of the pastors here for a long time. I'm Pastor Emeritus, and every once in a while I get a chance to come back and hang out uh, with you all, and I'm always uh, thankful uh, for that. Um, this is the first time, this is a new pulpit. Um, and uh, I don't know, has Mike talked about it a bit already? Because it is, because um, we were at a conference together, our denomination's triennial conference up in Edmonton, Alberta, Dan Hamill, the executive director of the conference, is here. And Mike saw this podium, he got, or pulpit, and he got to stand behind it and speak from it. It had major, major uh, pulpit envy. And so within a week, within a week, he had ordered this one and had his ears as exact duplicate. And so it is nice. The other one had been around for quite a long time. This feels substantial. It's a lot heavier. So um, it's nice. I think uh, you probably noticed the improvement in his messages, like, over overnight on that. So... It was a very good thing. Um, I know that Manuel last week, we're in this series called Formed in Worship. That, that's a, uh, what is that? It's like, I can't believe it's not butter kind of a tin or something. It's in there, but it's, uh, or that's clay. Right, that's good. Uh, and, um, and I know that, Mike, uh, that Manuel last week in his introductory message uh, to this series that we're in, that we're calling Formed in, in Worship, addressed as uh, what we call uh, the call to worship, uh, which is the very first thing we do as we gather God's people to worship Him. So I won't go into any detail on that right now because Manuel handed it last week, but I do want to mention that the psalm I picked for today and that Aaron just finished uh, reading, Psalm 95, is indeed a call to worship. So I'd like us to picture the call to worship in this way. We, all of us, are immersed in a world that overwhelmingly occupies our brains and our emotions and our wills and all sorts of complicated and often confusing and and often uh, troubling uh, uh, ways. We've got children to get to school. We've got cars that need to be fixed. We've got bills to pay. We've got decisions to make. We've got relationships that are in trouble that we're trying to, to mend. We've got deadlines to meet. We've got financial burdens and job responsibilities and health concerns and shame and internal doubts and insecurities and fears. And on top of all that, we're doing everything in our power to make sure that the Cubs have home field advantage all the way through uh, the playoffs this year. And all those responsibilities and, and, and headaches and concerns can wreak havoc, really, with our, our thoughts and our emotions and our wills as we come in the worship. It's just as we live our lives, but as we come in the worship today. And it can sometimes just be a bit overwhelming. And perhaps the most spiritually dangerous thing about all that is that we can begin to believe and live as though it is true that all these responsibilities and burdens and concerns are the most important things about our lives. We can begin to believe and consequently live as though it is true that our lives consist of the abundance of things that happen on the surface of our lives. That all these bills and diapers and car repairs and deadlines and ambitions and despairs and successes and 
failures and relationships and promotions and hassles, that all these things together make up the sum total of our lives. Now, those things are, of course, real. They exist in this universe. We all have to deal with them and engage with it all. And they're all important. They're all an important part of our lives. All that stuff really is where we do most of our living in this world. It's part of what it means to be alive. But it's not the whole picture. And as followers of the triune God, we know that there is more behind the curtain. We know that there is this invisible world that is even more real, more vivid, if we had the eyes to see and the ears to hear. More real and vivid than the world that is continually presented to our senses. And worship, uh, and particularly our worship together as the, as the people of God, this is where we remember this invisible world and where we remember the story of God. And when we are immersed in this larger story of God and His redemption of all things, this is when we can begin to actually make sense of the smaller stories of our lives. The, the smaller stories of our lives find their ultimate meaning and identity as they are immersed in the grand and glorious story of God and His redemption of all things. And the call to worship is that moment in our worship services where we are called out of this world that is primarily occupied by all the sensory stuff on the surface of our lives. And we are invited for an hour or so to look behind the curtain and get a little glimpse of this very real and invisible world. This is what Psalm 95 does. So let's listen to it again. Just close your eyes for a moment. If you want to, for those who like to do a sneaky peek, you can throw, Kim, that uh, Psalm 95 up on the screen if it's handy to you. But it may be best just to uh, close your eyes. And imagine that this morning you have been called out of, we have been called out of our homes. Called out of, for a moment out of the everyday hassles of our lives. And to lay all that stuff aside for a few minutes. We can pick it all back up when the worship service is finished and we are sent back out into the world. It will be there for us. It won't go away. But for now, for these few moments, we put it aside. And this is what we are being called to. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God. He is the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. It's about covers it, right? Top of the mountains, Lowest valleys, the sea, dry land. So come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Now when you sit in that for a moment and actually begin to let it seep into to us, it's a whole different way to understand our lives, isn't it? That's the real world. That's the bigger world. That's the vivid, invisible, real world. We don't escape the world. We don't escape the real world when we come to worship God together. We enter it. We enter it. 
Now, my responsibility today is to help us reflect together uh, about the time in our worship service from kind of after the call to worship and up until the time when we open God's Word and we are taught from God's Word. This is the time we come together when we confess our sins, when we sing together, when we pray together, when we recite the ancient creeds of the church as we did earlier with the Apostles' Creed, when we give and receive the offering, when we read Scripture, when we... uh, uh, move into worship stations over here. Are they, Angela, are they allowed to just come up during the sermon and everything if they get incredibly bored? Um, the, or even if you're not incredibly bored, it's a way that we engage our bodies, so feel free uh, to do that. Just do something risky and go. There's clay over there. You can make little worms and things like that, snakes. Um, when we're adoring God together. And what I'd like us to do together in the time uh, we have is to stop and ask a very basic uh, foundational question. Why do we worship? Why do we come together and confess our sins and sing and pray and read scripture and work with clay and other artistic endeavors, recite the ancient creeds, give our offerings? What's the point of it all? Why do we do it? Well, I would like to suggest that when we come together to worship, we are telling the story of God. When we come together to worship, we are telling the story of God. And in the process, we are celebrating and honoring and adoring the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the process, we are learning how to immerse the smaller story of our lives into the larger story of God and His redemption of all things. And in this way, when we apply effort and intentionality to this understanding and practice of worship over the years we will gradually begin to find our meaning, our identity, not foundationally in the smaller story of our lives, but in the larger story of God. This is what we mean when we have called this sermon series Formed in Worship, because we are actually being spiritually spiritually formed into the likeness of Christ by engaging together in worship. When we enter with great intentionality into the whole experience of worship, we are formed together as a worship community who are finding our identity in the story of God. So in our time of worship together, we are telling and celebrating the story of God. And as we get started on this point, I'd like, us to, I'd like to clear up a little misunderstanding that I suspect some people have about services of worship. Many people, particularly in our Protestant and Baptistic and free church traditions that we at Oak Hills are part of, Many people, I suspect, kind of think of the worship service as having two parts, the worship part and the sermon part. The worship part is where we confess sins and sing and pray and all that, and then the next part is when the pastor gets up and uh, gives a sermon. So you've got the worship, and then there's the sermon. That's actually, I think, a, a fairly inaccurate way of looking at it, a very small way, an incomplete way of understanding the worship service. The worship service, uh, worship on the Sunday morning, is everything we do together in the 75 or so minutes we gather. I guess it was like last week, like the hour and 45 minutes, I, I understood, uh, that we gather together on a Sunday morning. When we gather together and call everyone to worship, when we confess our sins, when we sing, when we pray, when we read scripture, when we recite the ancient creeds of the church, when we engage in uh, worship stations where we're engaging our bodies and all that, uh, when we give and receive the offering, when we open God's word and receive teaching from the Bible, when we respond to the message, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, when we pronounce a blessing and send us back 
all back out into this world that is precious to God. All this is worship. All that is the worship service. In many Protestant churches, there is a tendency to consider the part of the worship service that we're focusing our thoughts on today, the confessions of sin, the adoration of God, the singing, the praying, the reading of Scripture, the, the creeds, the offering, etc. There's a tendency to see this part of the worship service as kind of a warm-up for the main show, which, of course, is sermon. Uh, these opening elements in the worship service for a good number of people are kind of like the opening advertisements and, and, and previews that we see when we go to a movie theater. All those things that go on before the actual feature movie begins. Lots of people, and I'm one of them, like getting to the theater earlier and getting the popcorn and the soda, increasingly I've noticed in theaters, other kinds of libations, and, and, and watch all that stuff kind of as a prelude. But a lot of people just kind of come in uh, when the show's just starting. Uh, they don't want to see all those preliminaries. Then they're squeezing past people and spilling their popcorn all, all over everybody. It's like we do all this stuff first, the singing and the praying and all that, and then somebody gets up and gives some announcements, and then the lights go down, the music swells, and a voice uh, comes over the sound system and says, and now our feature presentation. And then Pastor Mike gets up and does a sermon. That's what we've been waiting for. And everything in the service is kind of pointing towards that moment when the pastor gets up and gives a sermon. Actually, historically, if there was something that the worship service historically was leading up to, some kind of climactic moment over the history of the Christian church, it would be the Lord's table. We gather, we confess our sins, we sing, we pray, we recite the creeds, we read scripture, we give our offerings, we teach from the Bible, and then, in response to all that, we come together at the highlight of the service to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And in this process, we are gathering in the very real presence of Christ in our midst. And it becomes actually a place of conversion. And here we repent and we remember and we are forgiven and we forgive and we are reconciled to God and to each other. And we are healed by the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But it's all worship from start to finish. It's all worship. And in this, we are telling each other the story of God. Now, I have two friends. I actually have more than that, but these two friends are the ones I'm speaking about here. They don't know each other, and they come to our church only very sporadically. But both of them, over the years, have pulled me aside separately and said, you may not have noticed this, Kent. Of course, I obviously noticed it, but I just played along with them. But I get to the worship service about 25 minutes after it begins. I skip all that singing and praying and all that other stuff. You know, that's not me. I don't like that stuff. I like when you and Mike and others get up and give the sermon. That's what I come for. All that other stuff doesn't, you know, kind of do anything for me. Uh, so think about that. Do you recognize this person saying that the foundational misunderstanding that my two friends have about worship? Somewhere along the line, as a result of being spiritually formed by our consumeristic culture, they made the mistake of thinking that the worship service was primarily about what they got out of it. They approached the worship service uh, as a consumer, like it was a buffet table. I'll take a little of mashed potatoes, you know, I'll take the prime rib over here, some steamed broccoli and cauliflower, but you're not going to pass on the tapioca and the yams. The yams are mushy. I, I hate mushy yams. 
they, they forgot or they, they never knew that the worship service is about the story of God. It's not primarily about their story. It's not primarily about what they like, what's important to them. It's about God and immersing the small story of our lives into the larger story of God and his redemption of all things. So when we confess our sins together, let's say there's a confession time at the beginning of the service, it doesn't really matter if someone doesn't necessarily feel in that moment that they have much to confess today. They're undoubtedly wrong about that, but it doesn't matter. Or if they just don't like the idea of confessing their sins, uh, or confessing sins makes them feel sad, um, and they don't want to feel sad. Confessing our sins is just about recognizing that God is holy, and us, not so much. And we need to repent and be forgiven and be cleansed and, and healed. When we sing, it doesn't really matter if we don't like the songs. I mean, it's great when we do, and hopefully we'll choose songs that help us worship, that are enjoyable to sing. But I know people, and so do you, who just don't like singing. And I tell them, well, that's a fascinating piece of information about you. I'm glad to know it. But, you know, the singing isn't about you. Singing engages the heart of a human being that plain speech can't do as well. St. Augustine said that the person who sings prays twice. Once with their words and then with their inner being. Singing does that. There's a letting go when we sing. And I can make the argument pretty easily that the singing is even more important for the person who doesn't like singing. It will often open something up that they may have closed off. It'll, it'll trigger something that we stay protected with. But regardless, the singing is not primarily about you or me. It's about God and the story of God. The same goes when we pray or when we read scripture, when we recite the ancient creeds, when, when we, we give our offerings. It's all about God and his story. It's not about us and our story. When we, we recited the Apostles' Creed earlier, do you have it up on the screen? Can you access that easily, Kim? Are you playing solitaire up there? Okay, the, um, we'll find it. Um, but it, it says, yes, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We're telling the story of God, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day he rose again. He ascended in heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the, the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. As we recite that together, we're telling the story of God. We're reminding us, ourselves, about this invisible world. And we're, in the process, we're recalibrating our understanding and vision of this world and our lives around God's story, not ours. See, here's the truth we have to wrestle with. Worship takes work. It's work. Worship is a verb. It's not a noun. It requires Effort. It's really impossible to worship well if we come to the worship service primarily as a consumer. Søren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish existentialist philosopher, he's a follower of Christ, theologian, poet, social critic, obviously a, a, an author. He uses the metaphor of a stage play to talk about this. He says that most people think of worship as kind of a thing that people come to and watch happen. We see ourselves in this way as the audience. And the upfront people, 
You know, the pastor up here, the singers, Manuel, uh, the scripture readers, the prayers. Those people are the actors that we come to watch. If God is involved at all, then he's kind of behind the scenes. He's the prompter. He's helping the actors with their lines or perhaps even the director. He's helping and uh, inspiring the actors to perform well. And Kierkegaard, in writing in this, never blamed the people coming to worship for this perspective because this is how the church has organized itself. The paid professionals did the acting. And because of this, the church, over the centuries, trained people by just their structure how to be an audience. Let's be honest with ourselves here. There continues to be much of this same perspective today in our consumeristic culture. But Kierkegaard then came along after he talked about that. He turned the whole perspective of the stage play upside down. He said that the stage play actually is a wonderful metaphor for what we are doing in a worship service. We just have the roles all goofed up. Kierkegaard said that the actors should be the people in the pews, in the chairs. You guys. The ones who are coming to worship. They're the actors. You're the actors. And your job, role, the script is to tell the story of God, to proclaim, to celebrate the grand and glorious story of God and his redemption of all things. The upfront people, well, we're just the prompters behind the scenes. We're helping maybe the actors with their lines. Maybe even we can be the director at times, helping the actors and the people of God tell the story of God with greater accuracy and uh, with excellence. And the audience... Well, this is where it's all beautiful. The audience is God. We are performing, as it were, the story of God for God. We are telling the story of God to God. And in the process, and I know I've said this a lot already in this message, but maybe because that's, I, I think this is the really central and foundational thing. In the process, we are learning how to understand the small story of our lives as we immerse these smaller stories into the larger story of God and his redemption of all things. In reality, in worship, the foundational issue isn't how much we have sinned and how desperately we need God. As true as that is. The issue isn't even really about how how well we worship. The foundational issue is God and his story. And in worship, we are learning how to tell the story, how to celebrate it, and how to be transformed by it. So let's take a few minutes and drop down a little more practically into all this, and let's reflect together on how we worship and what we need to do and how we need to do it. And here I want us to consider the importance of engaging. Now, it should be pretty obvious in light of everything we've talked about, reflected on so far, that there's no way that worship can be passive. It can't be an audience-oriented experience. We have to show up and we have to be present and we have to engage our brains and our bodies and our emotions. Just listen to the action words in Psalm 95 that we read earlier. We are told to shout. We are told to sing out loud. We are told to play music. Which, uh, we are told to give thanksgiving, and, uh, which means not just feel thankful, but to give thanks. We are told to praise God. We are told to bow down. We are told to kneel. Throughout Scripture, and you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with these passages, we're told to clap our hands, to stand, to play drums, to shake tambourines, to play instruments, to, to dance, and to rejoice. And by rejoice, we're not just told to rejoice on the inside. 
but rather our faces, our bodies, our voices, all this should demonstrate our rejoicing. If nobody around you can sense your rejoicing, it's highly likely that you're not rejoicing. See, we are embodied creatures. We are not disembodied spirits. We have a spirit, a heart, of course. But our spirits, our hearts, are always expressed through our bodies. We can't really worship together without engaging our bodies, and engaging our brains, and engaging our emotions. And let me take a moment now to respond to what I'm receiving from some of the disembodied spirits in this room. What some of you are communicating to me right now, perhaps some, through some sort of mental telepathy or these barely visible thought bubbles I'm beginning to see over some of your heads. Or it's more like the little frowns or grimaces that are beginning to sneak onto some of your faces. The objection goes something like this, but Kent, come on, I'm not like that. I haven't danced since I was four years old. I haven't cried in 24 years. I haven't shouted since the last time the Raiders won the Super Bowl. It's a long time. I'm a quiet person. I'm an introvert. I don't need to express everything I'm feeling like other people do. I keep all that to myself. I'm a private person. Still waters run deep. All that kind of stuff. And I get all that. And we get all that. Uh, We know that some people are by nature quieter than others, more reserved. And there's extroversion, there's introversion. We all know that. Nothing new. But we also know, don't we, that there is a way to show up in all things. There's a way to show up at work. There's a way to show up at play. There's a way to show up in a relationship. There's a, there's a way to show up then in worship. When I'm bringing my body, uh, uh, my emotions, and my voice, uh, I'm not hiding. I'm showing up. Certainly, the more reserved person, the quieter person, probably isn't as easily going to get up and run the aisles. They're not going to jump up here on the platform and start dancing and do some holy hollering in front of everybody. But we can, all of us, turn up the intensity a bit, can't we? We can move outside our comfort zones, and we can do the counterintuitive thing, and we can take some risks. I'll just say it this way. If we are usually very reserved and very quiet very passive, and have a tendency to not engage our bodies or our brains or our emotions or our voices in ways that feel a little uncomfortable, perhaps, and outside our comfort zones. Well, what are we going to actually do with the passages in Scripture that call us to shout, to dance, to sing, to rejoice, to weep, to clap our hands, to bow down, to fall down, to raise our hands, all that stuff. It's there. How do we get away with saying, well, you know, that's not for me. I'm the exception. I'm dancing on the inside. I'm raising my hands on the inside. In my heart, I'm on my knees. Many of you know this, but I was raised in an emotionally repressed Midwestern home. My parents weren't worried about me taking drugs. They were worried about me having emotions. And in that process, I learned how to live in my head. I intellectualized everything. Still today, I have an amazingly unhealthy ability to compartmentalize my life. Things can be falling apart. Hardly anyone ever would know it. I remember in high school, I was in the library, and for some unknown reason, I picked out the book, The Brothers Karamazov, 
by um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, some of your favorite books, I know. I'm thinking of seeing you right there. And I checked it out, and I, I brought it home, and I started reading it. I was floored by it. I mean, just a high school guy. Dostoevsky would go on for pages and pages about all these emotional things. There was such passion and anger and tears and internal turmoil. I, I, I felt like I was reading about another species of human being that I have never met before. But I was drawn to it, almost like it was a forbidden thing. But I didn't understand it. It's like all my emotions through my training are weighed down deep inside of me. They're there because I'm a human being and human beings are emotional creatures whether we admit it or not. But my emotions weren't allowed to come out and play ever. It's like my emotions are locked down in a dungeon. And there are guards who guard the door of the dungeon. And when any emotion wants to get out, the guards will check the papers of the emotion. And if the papers are out of order, or the emotions are out of order, the emotions get sent back down into the dungeon. And they get shackled to the wall. But every once in a while, the guards fall asleep, right? You know, they're reading a magazine by the door, you know, leaning their chair up against the wall. The hat falls down over their eyes, and they forget, and they leave the door open. And I watched some video about a member of the military coming home from a tour in Afghanistan and surprising their child in the classroom, and the kid is running to them and hugging, and everybody's crying, and... All of a sudden, I'm sitting in my office, and my shoulders are heaving, and I'm ugly crying. How did that happen? It's happened to me on the airplane. I don't know if you... I travel a lot now, and I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've, I'm sitting in the airplane. i got my earphones on. I'm, I'm watching a video of a neighbor giving CPR to a baby while the mother of the baby is watching. The baby starts, you know, breathing and, and crying, and the mother's sobbing, and everyone is sobbing and screaming and yelling, and all of a sudden, I sense that the person next to me is looking at me. And I realized, oh, I was making noise right there. It was like making noise. The guards had not only fallen asleep, they, they went away on vacation. All that's in us. It's all in us. And it's a good thing to learn how to engage those emotions. Our bodies are very attached to our emotions. A good thing to do to engage our body and hence kind of stir up those things is to raise our hands during a song. You know, just get them up there. You know, push them up past the eyebrows. That's, that's not listen to the voice inside us that, that says, well, that wouldn't be sincere. You know, that would be disingenuous. That's not who I am. I'm not an arm raiser. I'm an arm folder. How about instead we just ignore that voice and just do what the Bible says? Raise our hands. And admit that sometimes we don't because it's uncomfortable to us or we wonder what people might think or we're just a little rebellious and we don't like being told what to do. No one has ever died or lost their faith from raising their hands. Another thing to do that really helps in this is to prepare ourselves for worship. You know, just get here early. Be quiet. Decide. Make the decision. I'm going to engage my brain today. I'm going to engage my body. I'm going to engage my emotions. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to be the exception today. I'm just going to show up big time and I'm going to be fully present and I'm going to step outside my comfort zone. Now, before I finish up with my last point, I want to make a little disclaimer here after I said all that, just for those emotionally repressed Midwesterners among us. 
Obviously, there are times we come to worship, and a good number of us may find ourselves in this situation today. But obviously, there are times we come to worship, and we're exhausted. We're discouraged. We're emotionally drained. We're numb. Something in us that's shutting down. And just dragging my body to church today is all I can do. And I want to say, that's okay. It's actually quite wonderful. Because that's why we have the liturgy. That's why we have the songs and the confessions and the scripture and the prayer and prayers and the, and, and the creeds, the following of the church calendar. Uh, so we're understanding the story of God, Advent and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost and all that. See, the liturgy, the stuff we talk about is all true. No matter what we're feeling. And our worship service will tell the story of God. And when all I can do is drag my body to worship, that's more than enough. I can simply allow the truth and the content of the liturgy to carry me. And that goes for pastors too and, and worship leaders and musicians and prayers and scripture readers. For all of us, we don't always have to be at the top of our game. And it's spiritually damaging to pretend. We just show up, let the truth of the liturgy and the story of God carry us. It's not up to us. The worship service is not about me. It's not even about how well I worship. The worship service is about God and His story. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that. Let me finish with one last thought. Uh, and that is the presence of Christ. Jesus told us that where two or more are gathered in His name, there He will be in the midst of us. And one of the most important things we can do in worship is to believe that. Just trust that. The worship service in this way can become a place of conversion, a place of transformation. When we come humbly before God and we meet Him, we, when we recognize our desperate need for Him, when we realize that we are lost without Him, then His presence can be a healing and transformational presence in our lives. See, we cannot ultimately worship well and be angry at our sister or our brother. We cannot worship well and not seek to reconcile. Through the prophet Isaiah, God tells us that he hates worship when it's just words and it doesn't result in us being sent out as agents of reconciliation. When we worship and we ignore injustice or unrepentant and unaware parts of systems of injustice, our worship is distasteful to God. Read the first chapter of Isaiah. When we worship and we ignore the plight of the marginalized among us, our worship is odious to God. Now, I know Mikey will get into that more when we consider the sending and blessing part of the service, but for our purposes today, when we gather in the name of Jesus, He is here among us. And He is here inviting us to repentance and healing and transformation. Because that's what it means to immerse the small story of our lives into the larger story of God and His redemption of all things. It means that we are being converted, that we are becoming people who are not seeking to protect our place in this world. We are not seeking to get God to be on our side. Rather, we are people who want to learn how to live deeply into the story of God and his redemption of all things as we become people who are learning how to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Spirit, we are so grateful 
to you. We're grateful for the invitation you have given us to put aside all the stuff that plagues us, all the stuff in our lives that causes us to forget that there is an invisible world that is more vivid, more real than anything on the surface of our lives. We thank you for the privilege as we concentrate on the story of God that we can pull the curtain back a bit and we can see this beautiful, grand, and glorious story of God and your work at redeeming all things, this greater reality, this truth. And so as we worship today, as we finish our worship today, as we go out into this world, as we come back next week and the week after, help us to engage in such a way that your story begins to transform our story. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.